the uh, last of the summer potluck Bible studies. You're free citizens after this. Wednesdays can be spent as you please. Um, let's thank God. Dear Lord, we're very grateful for time in your word. End of the day. Our lives is before you. And we'd ask that we'd be a credit to it. In your son's name, amen. Okay, a, a, a short explanation. As I, When you divide up a six-chapter book into four weeks, things are going to be a little cattywampus at times. You want to fill the page, same size type all the time. Now, it just so happens that the first topic here at the end of chapter five is the remuneration of pastors. Topic very close to my heart. How much, how much gold do you bury a pastor in? Um, that was an accident, but I also want you to know that if you have any fears, because you know that any of these Bible studies, Evan seems to spend 45 minutes on the first few verses and then rushes through the last, so it would be 45 minutes on paying ministry. This could happen. But actually, uh, it's more than just the first few um, it's almost the theme of the section. There's some other topics that come in. Uh, but it's not just pay people who work in the kingdom. Let's read, the first verse says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. I'll let you think about that for a moment as I continue to preach and teach. <laughs> Well, and this is, you'll, you'll like the next part. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now, you can take that one home, but only if you take the theme of it home. Now, it's always awkward. It's always awkward for, you know, Paul is having the convenience of writing about this to a delegate of his in Ephesus, about how the church should be structured. He is not dinging Timothy for money. He's telling Timothy how to run the church in Ephesus. So it's easier then. It's harder when you're talking to people who are some of you parishioners. But I'll, I'll struggle, struggle through. The interesting thing about it is this, is a, this little section at the beginning has got a good and bad elders quality. What do you do about good elders? Well, you should... You know, if, they, if they're ruling well, you should give them double honor. Now, the uh, double honor is, is probably a financial support because the widows in the earlier part of the chapter were talking about honoring a real widow. It's a matter of church support. And it's clear when he says you should not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. The reference, that's Deuteronomy 25.4, uh, where the law of Moses, or the second law in Deuteronomy, says, uh, says that. And interestingly enough, the second part, the laborer deserves his wages, the closest quote we have to that is out of Matthew. Matthew 10.10, 10, where it says a laborer, and if you want it, it's on the back of the sheet. Um, Take no gold, nor silver, nor copper in your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And so people think that Paul's quoting Christ, and with the law, saying the scripture says. So he may be referring to an early gospel uh, or, or early record of the teachings of Christ um, at this point. Was that just sort of a uh, one of the passages you go to about the apostles' view of the other New Testament scriptures? But on our, on our plate tonight is um, how does the church deal with this problem of the pastors really, it's just impolite for pastors to be, I don't like the idea of negotiating for a salary. Thankfully, I don't have one, a contract or a salary. But that idea is, is only really popular in institutional systems. The new church was, was not that way. It didn't have all these seminaries you went to and you got your sheepskin and you went and applied for a job at the local church and they paid you whatever. 
There's a kind of thinking here that is very dangerous for pastors, very dangerous for congregations, because it goes right on to the negative side of bad, uh, bad pastors. Never admit any charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin... Now, when I just read verse 19, it would sound to me like uh, protecting the position. You don't get to talk bad about the bishops unless you got uh, a federal case worked out against them. Two or three witnesses. But it's almost like the assumption is he's probably guilty. As for those who persist in sin, because there are... Well, we see it all the time. You can't watch... Drudge Report for very long without some new pastor going down a blaze of glory. It would be probably a bad choice of terms, but um, a blaze, a hellfire. I guess Tully and Shavidian went down and bounced. It was so bad a couple weeks ago. But those sorts of uh, things are happening. Those who persisted sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. What does the church do nowadays? Or the non-Christian press hears about it, they run with it. The Christians think, we better minimize this. Not talk about it very loudly. It's not gracious to the, um, the sinners, the people caught up in it, etc., etc. Well, of course, if he's repentant, but if there's a persisting in sin... The Christian should be the one taking out the ads in, in, in uh, the Wall Street Journal saying, we'd like to announce that our pastor was caught in this kind of sin. We'll scare the bejeebies out of everybody else. Everybody would think, okay, the church takes the righteousness of its leadership as an important thing. And it says here in bold, which it wasn't in the original, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels. That's lining it up there. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. You get that kind of, uh, of calling to account as witnesses to his demand. I charge you to keep these rules without favor. Doing nothing from partiality. If you've been in Christian circles at all, uh, if you've been in Christian circles for a long time, you've watched the church politic go on. How people become fans of Pastor A, and they're his set, and then they're the old school people who never liked him to begin with when he came on, and they're always kind of running interference and, and undercutting his authority. And then there's the, the, the new youth pastor who's got a bunch of young people on his side. He wants to change everything to be singing off the praise sheet. And so, you have these politics go on, and you have partiality in the church. And Timothy's being told, don't apply these rules, paying the good pastor, disciplining the bad. Don't ever let your partiality for one person or another influence how you apply this. The, 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 the injustice, we think it's just, well, we, he's a real good friend. He's, I, really, I really love the guy. Well, what if you really didn't, you were in that other sect of the, other branch of the church that never liked the pastor, and the pastor got caught in sin and wasn't as repentant as the church might like. Would you come down like a ton of bricks? When you're a fan of his, a good friend, and your wives uh, in the same book club, then... You start to show partiality. But St. Paul wants, and, and the history of the church, is, is this story. This story of people not doing what Timothy was told to do in the name of God, Christ, and the elect angels. In fact, verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. He already warned us back earlier in the book, you don't appoint a novice or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the snare of the devil. Well, this is a kind of a, a sister rule to that. Don't you rush into church appointments. I've talked to a number of people um, who said, well, you, you have to have elders. I said, not if they're not qualified. 
it'd be better for the saints to get together without pastors than to get together with pastors that you disobeyed the word of God in order to get the pastor. That, sh that starts off on the wrong foot entirely with the scriptures. I'm going to disobey the Bible to get together to study the Bible. We don't, what solves the hastiness is, is not a, oh, let's put the word number six months there. Does six months solve hastiness? Well, it's only hasty when people don't pick up the information that, uh, what would be the right word, that, uh, um, that this is usually the word wisdom, that, that, that wisdom would have allowed them to pick up the information that the elimination of haste was supposed to grant you. You don't set a number, because as soon as you set a number, you ignore the situation for six months, and then you hastily appoint him. Don't ever replace the, 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 the numbering of things. I think institutional people, people who like to make Venn diagrams and charts and stuff, people who want to have office names and little plaques on them, on the doors, those are the people who want to give in their book of church order, a period of time to solve the hasty problem, not a quantity of information. You're supposed to not be hasty for the laying on of hands because there are good and bad people out there looking to become bishops. Nor participate in another man's sins. Now, this is not a, a, a proof text that you get to bring up in a situation where somebody's asked you to do something like steal something with them. Why well, should not participate in another man's sense? Well, you shouldn't. That's true. This is not the verse about it. This is a verse about how the church deals in its, you mind, its underpinning um, most basic of institutional necessities when you have teachers, when you have uh, preachers. You have to do something. You have to create them somehow. You have to meet a certain obligation. And you're not supposed to be quick to put somebody in. You know churches where if you become a doctor or a doctor moves to town, comes to your church, they get to be put on the board of deacons so fast. One, because they make a lot of money. You've heard of money? Well, churches want it. And they really like to have somebody who makes a lot of money get a position of honor. Not if they qualified, but not being hasty. Not being hasty is so that you do not jump over those um, obligations. You go back to the first part of Timothy, you read the requirements for elder and deacon, and you keep them. You don't participate in another man's persistent folly in this. Keep yourself pure. But that keep yourself pure is in, again, the context of this, uh, how you go about letting people into the leadership of the church. Now, then you say, well, Evan, it really changes the subject in this next verse. It tells you to keep yourself pure. It's not a purity. What would you, if some old lady walked up to you in church and said, purity. You should keep yourself pure. Of course, your mind would go to all the sex stuff and whether or not uh, I watch R-rated movies or what, you know. Purity has its own uh, um, set of information. But the purity here has to do with how we view the leadership of the church. We are so submissive to the history of Christendom when we ought not be. We are so submissive to standards of behavior where there's a, a degree of, of egotism. I, I, it, was, it was as my dad went through the years and bookstore ministry. Back when he started in the bookstore ministry, um, there wasn't much in Christian books, frankly. Nor was there much graphics in Christian book design. 
So you just had this plain two-color cover by Charles Spurgeon. And there's some boring title by Spurgeon and boring stuff by Spurgeon. And that's what you got. And occasionally there'd be some, you know, uh, Ray Hessian Cavalry Road or something like that. You know, stuff that does not sell at all today. Because what do we have today? We have a very big picture of the author covering the back of the dust jacket. I mean big, like your mother doesn't have in her bedroom. You know, she has a nice small picture, just to remind her of what you look like. But for the nation, you need it, you know, see the pores, everything. They got to know that you, Charles Swindoll, or Amy Grant, or whoever's writing the book, does she write books? I, I think my dad finally had it. Well, I knew he had it earlier but than this, but he finally laid down the law. When we got a, a pop-up cardboard cutout of Amy Grant, full life-size, bending over in tight jeans. We were supposed to put that up in the bookstore. Wasn't happening. What was the name of that album? Remember the name of that album? It was something very suggestive. But it was about Jesus. What was I? Are we talking about something here? Well, we don't... We, we, our view of the church, we're so go along to get along. We think that the church insists that it's supposed to be that way. And yes, you are supposed to go to seminary. When I married my son in New Jersey a few years ago, uh, the New York Times called me to find out New York Times article on his wedding. Kind of a, kind of a thing to do back there. And uh, I could not, they couldn't understand that I was a pastor and hadn't gone to seminary. They, they, what do you mean? How do you, and I spent, I don't know, half an hour on the phone with this reporter who's just writing a marriage announcement. And finally I had to give him this story, which he could comprehend, of how Doug Busby had, you know, ordained the elders over here in Moscow. But if he knew half the picture of it, he would have uh, probably killed himself. Because that's not the way, that doesn't give you the magic. You don't have the magic to marry people. We believe these things, we accept these things, we never stop and go, hold it, aren't these the most conceited people you have ever heard of? Teachers in the Christian faith. Everything is their name, everything is their following. Now I'm sure there's some good men out there. Doesn't because they have a big name or they're successful doesn't make them bad. But don't you suspect that an awful lot of it is not living the church life as the apostle wanted it set out. He was worried about conceited pastors. He was worried about greedy pastors, power-mad pastors. Oh, the phone. Anybody important? No. Nope. See if I cancel that. I don't know how these work. That's on the recording now, so you can go out to SoundCloud later this week and hear the phone ring. Now, I, I, so what I'm, I'm trying to do is get to this point about keeping yourself pure, that you take some time to purify your notions of the church. Um, stripping away the, the millennia of, of disobedience that Protestant and Catholic alike have all been guilty of, to purify yourself from the kind of... I mean, they used to sell ministerial positions in the Church of England, let alone in the Catholic Church. I mean, they, but the, the living that you would get in the Anglican Church didn't matter if you believed, didn't matter if you cared, didn't matter if you could do it. You were the third son. First son got the inheritance, second son went to the military, third son got stuck with a church living somewhere in the Cotswolds, if he was lucky. Purify yourselves because as you get out there in the world, graduate from whatever you're doing here, or move away from Moscow, God forbid, um, you're going to find a church. And I, I would want you to start representing the immediate and actual Christian life as it's supposed to be, 
living what it's supposed to be in the scriptures. You don't have to always be correcting everybody. You know, nobody likes that in their church. Some new kid comes to town and is telling the pastor off right after the first sermon. No, that's not healthy. But you can live it. You can live the church as the, the apostle asked you to. He's asking Timothy to do it himself uh, and try to have this influence on the people around him. And then, just in case you were thinking that the purity comment because there are people who really like purity or who view purity as something that is in some sort of pharisaic way free from the world the next line is do not, uh, no longer drink only water but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments after he told him to keep himself pure he writes him a uh, doctor, doctor, get out of jail, free card, or whatever it is, to go drinking. Now, now most everybody says, yeah, they'd like to point to that verse and go, see, it was allowed for his ailments, but it also says, for the sake of your stomach. Now, I don't know if he had a bad stomach, if that was one of his ailments, or Dave, Peter, what's the apostle's name? Paul. Paul was uh, just saying, you know, for the sake of it, tasting good, and because it helps health-wise, why don't you do this? I don't know. And I don't know why he shoved it in here, uh, other than it may have, since it's a personal letter, it may have been a personal aside for the sake of Timothy's uh, uh, health, and he shoved it in there because he wanted it in there. But I found it interesting that after he told him to keep himself pure, he then writes him a liberty chit to get out of um, uh, drinking only water. But he goes, because the interesting thing, he goes back onto his subject of elders. The sins of some men are conspicuous, pointing to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. Isn't that true? Pastor A, years of... I remember... Uh, best book we had on marriage in the bookstore for years I forget the guy's name wrote Magnificent Marriage handed it out a lot, free copies to people he'd been having an affair with his secretary for seven years University Press I think okay stuff happened, my mother always used to say be sure your sin will find you out not that she came up with that, that was Bible but but the interesting thing about this passage is, be sure your good will find you out. Look at the verse 25. So also good deeds are conspicuous. And even when they're not, they cannot remain hidden. The same relationship. When you serve the kingdom, when you serve righteousness, it's, you might say, golly, the righteous like David never, oh, how come the righteous don't ever get anything and the unrighteous always win? Well, because both of you are dealing with the inconspicuous part of your life. The unrighteous, when it's, their unrighteousness is inconspicuous, get away with it. And the righteous, when their righteousness is inconspicuous, no one credits them. No one honors them. But believe me, sin catches up with you, and so does righteousness. Especially as you get on in years. And I want to encourage you especially, uh, uh, Rachel's grandma, uh, Anna Berry. Did you know the Berries? Tom and Anna Berry? Davy family. Class of 53. Okay. You see this woman in her 80s. Just a, a gem of a Christian. And you, everything that she has done in her Christian life starts to seize up into some kind of monument almost. What you do following uh, the kingdom ends up being, after being ignored all your life, people finally look up and they see you as a monumental example of what Christ can do in your life. And at the same time, you're looking at us weekly at the, at the checkout counter and seeing everybody go down in flames who's been living a life of sin without being caught. Look at Bill Cosby. He said today in the newspaper that Bill Cosby's, the reason the judge is really going after him is because he had been so morally pontificating throughout his 
career as an actor about how other people should be. And he was drugging women. Stuff happens to these, to both of us. In chapter 6 it says something that you're not generally cool with. Let, a, let all who are under the yoke of slavery already. Anybody object to slavery here? I, I grew up in Maryland, border state. Okay. We waffle. Let all who are under the yoke of slavery regard their masters as worthy of all honor. There's the problem. It's not that, okay, slavery was that part of the society. It was all, there were no civil rights. John Locke hadn't thought a thing at this point in history. And so the apostle of the living God tells the slaves, you ought to honor your masters. He tells them it's a yoke. Slavery is no fun. He told, tells them if freedom avails itself, take opportunity in it, because obviously it's better not to be a slave. But if you're a slave, hey, honor your master. So, for this reason, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be defamed. It is more important that we not have, if we were in a slave situation, I don't care if you had read John Locke, it doesn't matter. Your right as a Christian is to honor the person who owns you because your honor of the person who owns you protects the name of Jesus Christ. His reputation, it represents the gospel in you, it represents the name of Jesus Christ. It's his reputation. It's his resume. It's how believers should act in situations that they're under authority. Now you say, well, yeah, but what about in the church? Well, let's, next verse. Those who have believing masters, that, he doesn't say, believing masters, you must let your slaves go free because someday Abraham Lincoln is going to say something similar. No. Oh, that's, you know, enlightenment nonsense. You might not want to have slaves. Let's not have them. But if you have slaves, and you're a believer that you own the slaves, you bought them at a fair market price, what are you told? Well, you're not told anything at this point. I mean, other places it tells you to treat them, you know, like a Christian. But here it doesn't say, let them go. It tells the slave who has a believing master must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brethren. So they can't take opportunity in saying, hold it, you own me, that's not really ideal. Um, I can treat you with a degree of insubordination, uppityness, because you're holding me to something that I, I really don't like. Rather, Okay, it's not just you may not disrespect. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these duties. Hmm. So how about it? Well, I'm saying it in the worst possible way so that you will stop and go, you know, I've got to choose this day whom I will serve. Whether it's the gods your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. What did Joshua say? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. When you serve the Lord, you don't have an option about whether you agree with him or not. You may, as an American but not as a Christian. And as an American, this is completely untenable. You, I can say it in my backyard, and hopefully the NSA is not in any way listening in. I could get into trouble. I mean, they're making them, or somebody's taking the Confederate flag off the top of the General Lee car from, what's the name of that show? Dukes of Hazard, which I never watched. And I wasn't flying the Confederate flag anyway. I've got the Scottish flag out front. But... 
people are very, very uptight about it, and Christians all over the place are fallen all over themselves to agree with the world as much as they can. Because they fear man more than they fear God. Now, I think a Christian can have a view against slavery. I think it's a bad economic system. It's not nice to, you know, it's kind of a tragedy to have to own people. But that's different than giving advice. If you're in Africa and they still have slavery, what do you tell? You got this passage in front of you, you got the slave here, and the Christian master right there, and both of them are in your church. What do you do? Do you go all American on their heinies? Or do you teach the word of God? You say, you serve him with great, great affection, great devotion, because he's a believer. He's going to benefit from your kindness, your hard work. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So that's the kind of difference, that and more. And you have to stop and say, does Paul really, if this is one of those situations where I'm going to go, you know, this might be Paul being a little bit cultural. Is Paul a little cultural at times? Well, you'd like the passage to look like it's a little cultural. Kind of, you know, where he says, you know, Christ didn't say this, I'm saying this, or something along those lines. Just to give you some cover so you can reject what he says. I still accept what he says. But if you want to reject what he says, you want to at least have it look like he's not serious about this. I was telling somebody yesterday, I think it was Al, we were on the porch, smoking, for the sake of our stomachs. <laughs> and, uh, and our frequent ailments. Um, and I'm remembering a situation in C.S. Lewis, who I am a disciple of, where he wrote something with which I disagreed. In the Reflections on the Psalms, he had a view of the imprecatory Psalms where he was saying that God had had David write his sin out to be an infallible record of David's sin about his enemies. Okay, a little forced, a little too much. Paul wanted, uh, uh, Lewis wanted it to, the scriptures to be true, but he didn't, couldn't wrap his head around that kind of violence. Decades later, a few feminist evangelicals writing their book on something, you know, like they will. Letha Scanzoni and Virginia Mollencott. I remember their names. I don't remember my children, but I remember these two women. Read the book. It was short mercifully. And they uh, were arguing that just like C.S. Lewis had said that David was in sin and God had recorded his sin in the Psalms, they wanted to believe that God had recorded Paul's sin in the epistles regarding women. They just invented it. Well, there are people who are looking for a loophole. There are people who want to discount Paul saying he's too cultural, talk about the religion he was part of, his Pharisaic thinking, whatever it is. I wanted to set that up. Say, are you going to believe, are you going to set your mind to be godly? When you're saying I'm going to be godly, your piety, your goodness, everything is going to be reference to what a God thinks and wants. Verse 3, if anyone, red, red type, teaches otherwise, black type and red type, does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching which accords with godliness. He is puffed up with conceit. He knows nothing. He has a morbid craving for controversy and for disputes about words, which produce envy, dissension, slander, base suspicions, and wrangling among men who are depraved in mind and bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. It's like he kicked you down a flight of stairs, trotted down after you, grabbed you by the collar, dragged you around in the mall until he found another set of stairs, and kicked you down those. He wants to be sure that you think, if you think, you can say, 
anything but these teachings. You are a conceited, ignorant jackass. That's pretty much it, right? Conceited. What do we got? Ignorant drama queens. Morbid craving for controversy. Disputes about words. That's what this, I have a note here in case you need it in an American. We are conceited, ignorant drama queens with scholastic rods up our butts because we like the identity advancement of ours and our group. We love the fight, the drama. We love to go pick on the Presbyterians because, my gosh, it's a joke that writes itself. And the Presbyterians are out there loaded for bear. And then the Methodists, if they had a sense of humor, they might be after it. Baptists, Anglicans. Christianity is this history of awful treatment of groups, not of Christians, because we know that but Christians belong to Jesus. But we Baptists, or we Presbyterians, or we Arminians, we Calvinists, whatever it is, defined by a particular wrangling over certain words, defined over certain envies, suspicions, dissension, and it's saying that is a depraved mind there in into the verse 5. Men who are depraved in mind. That means their mind has taken on a lower frame, a lower uh, uh, a way of thought. You've, you've shopped at Walmart. Or you even watched a commercial, right? Commercials on TV? Do you ever feel like you're being talked to like you have an IQ of 60 by an advertisement? And yes, it's advertisement, not advertisement. Now, you know that there are lower forms of thinking. You know that the average mom is the sum of all fears. And so they throw every fear in front of her in the advertisement. People of low mind are moved by those low thoughts being promulgated, being supported, being uh, the measure of things. The history of Christendom is this. The history of Christendom is not noble men walking across Europe six inches off the deck. Occasionally a good guy will get burned. Occasionally. The rest are just hell on wheels. You don't want to look at them close. You don't want to read a biography of some of your favorite people. Because you're, or occasionally there'll be some great saints. But I'm talking really occasionally, like as often as Jesus. You might get Richard Baxter. You might have... Who else can I think of? That's it. You know, there's some people who did good things, who served the kingdom. But you know how many Anabaptists Luther drowned? And I'm, I'm a fan of Luther. Not a Lutheran. I'm thankful that he discovered the gospel. But he drowned a bunch of Christians. They fought wars over books of church order. Shooting cannons at each other. And I'm all for shooting cannons at each other. Really, I am a big fan. Just not in the church. The church is supposed to be different than the world. So we have created a, 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 a conceit about not only the men that, that lead the church, but a conceit about the history that brought us to this point, as if all these things are points of celebration. And he's warning Timothy to avoid these things. And anybody who disregards what he's saying has this morbid desire and lowness of mind. They're bereft of the real point. Never stop and... I was at a party at July 4th out at Allen Alley's house. There's a lot of people and was sitting there with a... I was smoking again. Okay. I just wasn't feeling well. I had to... A Christian friend of mine said, Evan, do you see anything in the New Testament about what Jesus or the Apostles want out of us politically? I said, no. I do not. He said, yeah, neither had I. You ever, you ever stop and ask yourself, what in the world are we up to? Are we, 
up to what we're supposed to be doing. When you're bereft of the truth, when the truth is stripped away, when you have lowness of mind because you wouldn't play this game where you decided you were going to write what you wanted your religion to be like, not what the Bible said it was. When the instructions come to Timothy and say, you, it's not what you like, or you're just not comfortable with slavery, get comfortable. Doesn't have, you don't have to say it's good. You just have to say, these are the instructions for Christians who own them and people who are slaves. You don't back away from what God has uh, revealed to us, or you're starting to make up your own religion your own way of doing things, your own popularity group that is at war with the other popularity groups. You have to be developing a different point about Christianity than Christianity makes. Because Christian, Christian people are following Christ, from what I understand. They're bereft of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. You know, even the most casual observer, even if you're not a student of Christian history, you know that the church has been driven by power and money. And no matter what, we still walk into the pew, wait for that little round plate with the velvet bottom to come zinging by, and we empty our wallets into it to keep this thing going. Now, I'm a pastor. I'm not supposed to let it out that you probably shouldn't be doing that. But you probably shouldn't be doing that. Because gain, and this is something that goes back to that first part. You say, hold it, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor. Right there at the top. Evan thought that was great. Now what's he doing changing his tune down here? He says, they are imagining that God this is a means of gain. Money is a means of purchasing anything. You can purchase anything with money. It says that in the scriptures. Bread is for laughter. Wine gladdens life. But money answers everything. It's my life verse. Cigars have to be worked in there somehow. But And the danger is, we're not thinking, our minds bereft of the truth, depraved of mind, we start thinking the normal, the normal uh, uh, paths of humankind. We start thinking of our group and the amount of money it takes to run this group, have power for this group, have this group succeed, do advertising for this group. It all costs money. And people start to treat religion. You ever get one of those mailers from the kid you knew in high school or the family with the high school kids? for the, it's always this real, you figure that somebody wrote it in Chicago and they put their name in it at certain points. I was really thinking I could really grow this summer if you sent me to Costa Rica. I just have to raise $3,500. And, you know, and they say, I think this will be a really great part of my maturing in Christ. Oh, shut up. I am a, I'm a cynic about Christians and money now because St. Paul was a cynic about Christians and money. People who think that God that is... And it, a lot of times is because there are a lot of dear saints out there. You ever see the movie uh, Lady Killers? Tom Hanks? Um, it's a remake of an earlier version of it, but it's about these thieves that are using this black Christian woman's house to dig a tunnel to a riverboat casino to steal all the money. And their sins slowly come back and bite them. Karma is bad and all of the bad guys get their comeuppance. But the uh, black Christian woman, she goes to church, and she supports Bob Jones University with her gifts, uh, her tithes and offerings. Bob Jones is a, not a, you might say, racially sensitive place. And this lovely black woman sends her gifts in there, and then finally all the money comes to her, and, the, and she doesn't know where it came from, and all the thieves are dead. She's got millions of dollars, and she sends it all off to Bob Jones University. <laughs> we, we, the people who want to have, be good, the people that want to be good, find themselves going, oh yeah, they're working, they're doing this, they're going on a summer project to preach the gospel in Yugoslavia. They're going on summer camp. 
They should pay for it themselves. But people use godliness to speak to us. What was that line that uh, the uh, indulgences guy, Tetzel? What did he say? Remember what the sound, something about the sound of the coin in the money box and one more soul goes up to heaven or something like that. Because they were selling the road to heaven through indulgences. And, and Don't think it can happen? Watch late night TV on the Christian channel. You'll, you mean, you'll have to go take a shower. You will feel so dirty. But these guys do it. Why do they do it? Because Christians are idiots and they're nice. And they can't believe that anybody in the name of God would lie to them for money. And someone does. Now he says here in verse 6, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. Godliness is a great lifestyle if you're content, because if you're content, he let us know another place that, that I've learned whatever state I am in, abounding, abasing, much and little. I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The godliness allows me to be content wealthy and content poor. For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation. This is not a proof text about someone like, you might not like Donald Trump, or you might not like Bill Gates, or whoever. Rich, it's not a verse about rich people. Nor is it about someone who's got a real interest in business and wants to go out and, you know, make a good living. It may, it may have some points there, but he's talking about people in the ministry motivated by money, who see the godliness as a means of gain, sees the, the creating teams, dividing Christians against Christians, having people join up as a way of getting people to pay, to have their interests supported by a great scholar. Those who desire to be rich fall into a temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Take time to read through this passage again sometime late at night while you're watching that show. You know, they have names like Creflo Dollar. Creflo Dollar. Are we idiots? Yes, we are. And those guys have a lot of money. Now, at this point, I should subtly switch back to verse 17 of chapter 5. Because that, you're really, we can trust Evan. Let's give it to him. But let's not. My wife's going, are you out of your mind? Well, I want to follow what Paul's saying. You fall into it, the desire to be rich, a snare and senseless and hurtful desires. Those things just track after these lives. Because they haven't been built up in Christ. They've been built up in corporate religion. For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced their hearts with many pangs. Now again, he's talking about teachers, elders, people that you look up to. You see them bought out. You see their theology slipping. How much would your theology change if you knew you were going to be fired if you didn't? But as for you, man of God, shun all this. Aim at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Now, look at those words. Oh, before we do, before we do, you say, Ten minutes. Are we going to do this? Oh, no problem. But all those t texts on the back of the sheet. Now, I wanted to bring this up, the Corinthians passage on the back at this point, where he, he has told you at the beginning, you should support the elders who labor and preach and teaching, who let rule well. You should watch out for men who don't. You have to have a system of dealing with bad men. You should be impartial in this. You should have a purity of the church in mind. That's an instruction of how others deal with the pastor, deal with the elder. But the elder himself, the person who is either not or is a conspicuous sinner, or a sinner to be revealed or not, 
we're given this choice between a bereft mind, a depraved mind, a, 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 a factious mind, and the man of God who aims at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and steadfastness, and gentleness. Look at what he says in Corinthians 9. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So I say, that, do I say this on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Same passage out of uh, Deuteronomy. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope for a sh of a share in the crop. If we have sown spiritual good among you, is it too much if we reap your material benefits? If others share this rightful claim upon you, do we not still more? Nevertheless, now this is what's different about Paul. This is how the right kind of, you know, as you're looking in, in, in future at where, when you move someplace and you find a church, be looking for the kind of person who understands their right, understands what the church ought to do, but their participation in it is to not be thinking of that. Nevertheless, we've made no use of this right. But we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who, that those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now that is the command of the church. That is what the church should be thinking. That's what they should expect, that there's a benefit given to the uh, pastorate. But then the pastorate has got to be thinking something else. He's not supposed to be rubbing his hands together, go, waiting by the offering box, waiting for his... his uh, loot, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing to this to secure any such provision. So, I'm not, I don't want it, and I'm not playing some sort of trick. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground of boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if it's not of my own will, I'm entrusted with a commission. What then is my reward? Just this, that in my preaching I may make the gospel free of charge, not making full use of my right in the gospel. There's nothing wrong with you paying a pastor. You'll want to watch the pastor's heart because you want to see what kind of money sets he has. Not how whether he pays his bills, but... Would he still do the job if you voted his salary to zero? Because he wants to teach the word. Go out and get a job. What, what did Paul do? Paul, Acts 20 here, I coveted, this is when he's talking to the Ephesian elders on his way to Jerusalem, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by so toiling, one must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul's thought was to prove that the Christian work was more valuable. He wanted it completely untainted so that he could never be accused of doing it for base gain. There were sometimes, I think the Philippian church supported Paul. It was a real benefit to him. He accepted that. But he was very conscious that the rights of support were not something he insisted on. What he wants to have... The, see, again, you're looking at good and bad leadership. How do you relate to good leadership? How does the good leader relate to his good leadership? The good leader, the man of God, is to aim at righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. A list of godly terms, a list of things that you all agree with, a list that maybe we should stop and consider just for a moment. Shun means having nothing to do with. Aiming at means having everything focused on. You, you aim at something, you want to get it. Uh, it, it, it occupies you. You, you. you blank out the rest of the world. You want to, what is righteousness? Doing right. 
What is godliness? Right the way God likes it. In other words, it's pious. What is faith? Because God said so. In other words, you subsume what you think you believe God, like Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's faith. Do you believe what God says? When you run across Timothy 6, 1 and 2, and you have never thought about what a Christian should do if they own slaves, and you kind of don't like how it makes you feel, you drop to one knee and you say, yes, Lord, I don't understand it, but it's the way you say it. Help me understand it. But you submit yourself to God. That's what faith is going to be. Love means that all this is toward others, not toward you. Steadfastness, you're going to be dependable in all of this. Dependably good, dependably um, God's way, dependably because God said so, dependably for others, you're dependable. People look to you for the right Christian response. And gently. This world, there's a lot of piety out there that can end up being, um, have a lot of breakage. You know, who, who want to have the tough he-man sort of Christianity, you know, and smash mouth sort of approach. Gentleness is a, uh, it's, a lot of people find it natural to be dependable, courageous, faithful, da -da -da -da. gentle. That means you know how to pick up something that's frail. Not that you are frail, but you can pick up something that's frail. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession. Now we spoke last week or the week before about the immediacy of the Christian life. This is immediate Christianity. It is not Christendom. It is not what your church is doing. It's not anti-abortion. It's not anti-Democrats. It's not anti... Uh, what else are we anti? Um, Marijuana. Marijuana. We're not anti all these things where you may be, knock yourself out, but Christianity is immediate. You take hold. You fight the good fight. You fight it. Do not wait for your church to have a program by which you might fight it, or feel like you might fight it, or get issued a t-shirt after you went to the big city to fight it. They have their reward. It's a t-shirt. You fight the good fight of the faith. You, Timothy, and you might put yourself in there. I must fight the good fight. That must. I get up in the morning, deal with my wife, dealing with my house residents. Um, what else do I have to deal with? Children. Children. Thank you in the way God expects. Take hold of the eternal life. When it tells you in Peter, gird up your minds, be sober, set your hope fully on the grace that to be revealed to you at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That means it wants you to be thinking about the eternal life that began when you made the good confession. To which you were called when you made the good confession. What's that? In the presence of many witnesses. I guess he walked the aisle. I'm sure that's how they did it. Back in those days. In the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who, this gives you a hint, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. It tells us in Romans 10 that if we believe in our heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord, we shall be saved. It is making the good confession. In the situation in John, I gave it to you on the back, the only one of the, the gospel writers that had the conversation more laid out with Pilate, Pilate entered the praetorium again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingship is not of this world. If my kingship were of this world, 
my servants would fight that I might not be handed over to the Jews, but my kingship is not of this world. Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this I was born, and for this I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? That's a great, almost too literary to be true. A wonderful conversation. But Christ is declaring, this is the one place, the most content he de delivers up to Pilate. The most content in his conversation. And he's saying he made the good confession before Pilate. That he is the way. He is the truth. And that's what we all do. When we say Jesus is Lord in the good confession, we are declaring that he is the way, the truth and the life. That's what it, we're making the good confession, the same one he made. I charge you, this is in the presence of God and of Christ, I charge you, verse 14, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach. You don't just sin when you, you don't just make a mistake when you sin. You don't just have a syndrome when you sin. You don't just have a problem with X. You are defaming Jesus Christ. You are hurting his cause. You are not keeping it unstained. You're not keeping it free of reproach. And this will be made manifest at the proper time by the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He works himself into a benediction right there. Before the end of the book. A little bit, jumped a little early. But benedictions, you say, well, you could teach your way through a benediction. I did a few years ago at church where we went through a number of New Testament benedictions. But in many cases, it's good just to feel that. To read it back to yourself aloud. Just like that almost literary aspect of John writing the conversation with Pilate. When Paul waxes eloquent about the Lord, it's something you just want to hear your own voice say in your own bedroom where nobody else can hear you say it. Just so that you hear your voice say it. Because you've made a confession. This is your immediate life. It's not us. It's not the church. It's you. You have either made or not made the good confession. <coughs> Those words would come wonderfully and naturally to you if you had. He comes back in verse 17, back to the rich. Now remember I said that the desire to be rich was really in the context of pastors. It could be applied outside that, but these are the rich. Not the desirous of wealth, but the rich. Charge them not to be haughty. It doesn't say charge them to give away all of their money. Make it all fair. It says don't be uppity. Don't be arrogant. Don't be above yourself. Nor set their hopes on uncertain riches, which is the real temptation. What did Solomon run into? He was trying to find meaning in all of life. He finally got more money than... And God, I guess. And realize you can't buy what you need to buy. You can't. Nothing has utility. Uncertain riches, but on God, who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. Instead of, instead of me thinking about my 401k and my retirement and all the rest, you can have one, just don't think about it. Don't set your hope on it. You've got to figure out how your immediate Christian life is going to be lived in credit to the gospel. Your immediate Christian life is going to be lived in credit of the good gifts God has given. Because earlier in this book, it told you that you were supposed to enjoy everything God had given. It's consecrated by the word of God in prayer. Be thankful for it. Hey, have some wine for the sake of your stomach. He richly furnishes us with everything. If you have the, we're all rich. Come on, this is America. We're sitting in a backyard that, that is in, in, on the edge of the empire, okay? And the Canadians aren't even, not even threatening us. 
we could probably put together an army and beat them. Okay, just us here. Nobody's threatening us. Nice light, nice temperature, good food. We're all wealthy. Solomon would wonder where we all got all this cool stuff. We have everything to enjoy. We need to learn how to live the Christian life in the immediate opportunity that it is and enjoy the things that God has given. They are to do good, the rich are, to be rich in good deeds, liberal and generous, thus laying up for themselves a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of a life which is life indeed. There's a slight hint of Christ's remark in the parable of the um, unrighteous steward where he says the sons of light are more shrewd in their dealings than the sons of God. I mean the sons of this world are more shrewd than the sons of light. Make friends for yourself by the means of unrighteous mammon so that when it fails they may receive you into eternal habitations. He says, look, if you're rich in good deeds and generous and liberal, you will lay yourself up a good foundation for the future. If you happen to have a lot of buck, use it. Think of others. Think of love. Think of the Christian work. Avoid those people who seem to be thinking of you thinking of the Christian work. And send you letters. Strike them from the list. Put it out on Facebook, maybe. I will not give to any ministry that asks me for it. Okay? That's what you might want to let everybody know. Then they'll send you a postcard. You'll notice we did not ask you for money. This is a letter to inform you that we did not ask you for money. But use it so that you can take, of life, or take hold of the life which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Avoid the godless chatter and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have missed the mark as regards the faith. Grace be with you. That is probably a last shot of early Gnostic thinking that was coming up. Knowledge being Gnosis and then what's falsely called um, knowledge. And it was a bunch of very specious arguments or claims about the nature of God, the nature of matter, the nature of spirit. And it got to be a real problem by the second century and it crept largely into the church um, and it's still affecting us today when you see someone who's a monastic and you kind of grant them holiness points for being a monastic. That's Gnosticism. You know, that's your, not, I'm not saying the monk was Gnostic, he may be, but, but your own Gnosticism which has crept in has defined those who give up. It's all about enjoying the good God has given you, able to be content in not having stuff, not having leaders that are about getting stuff, but you giving stuff to the work. It's a, it's a wonderfully balanced, healthy view of money. It's not, that's bad, uh, in a, again, a Gnostic sense, or that's really good in a health and wealth gospel sense. We're not Creflo Dollar, and we're not, who would be an awful... Serinthus, he was a Gnostic. We don't want to miss the mark as regards the faith. Grace be with you. Not much to say there. So let's not. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we are grateful for this summer, for the friends we have, the time we've had together. Help the saints gather in this immediacy of the good life we have in your Son, both the good gifts you have given us and the good gifts we can give others. We would ask that you would bless uh, your church, help it mature so that it's less of the disobedience that we see in this book and more the advice you gave Timothy in this book. Help us be a part of those answers in whatever churches we attend. In your son's name, amen.